We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw, we go tit for tat, we have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Runes podcast. This is episode 120 of the pod. It is a football pod. We are in it to win it. We are here to break down some Bears football and football across the NFL. But before we lose our minds, let me introduce you to my partner in crime, Matt Rooney. I'm a little bit glad that we didn't have to do a podcast right after the Bears lost because I think that would have just turned into like an hour of us yelling and screaming. Not even at each other, just at the situation. Like We would have been yelling and screaming at each other, but it wouldn't have been aimed really at each other, just more the situation. Um, but sometimes yeah, yeah. I go ahead. No, I say sometimes I wish you could attach JPEG images to the podcast that like people mm. can look at while they listen to the podcast, and we would just screenshot our text to get everyone up to speed on how we were feeling in that moment. But I think it's safe to say that at this point, cooler heads have prevailed. Um, we know what needs to be done. We know what needs to be improved upon, and that visceral anger of Thursday night is no longer with me. Um, so. What do you want to take, since we've, like you said, cooler heads have prevailed a little bit, we've had a little bit of time to separate ourselves, kind of take a look at everything, the grand scheme of it all. You want to start mm-hmm. with some of the positives we can take away from Thursday no. night? No, 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 you want, you no, no, no I don't want to do that. Okay, what do you want? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to start with the positives at all. Um, I want to start with the bad things. Where, I want to start with the fact that on the 100-year anniversary of the league, the Charger franchise put up three points against their rival at home against a crowd, or in front of a crowd, that was ready to blow the top off that building. Um, mm-hmm. They were not given a reason to. Um, that's the bad. The Where bad do you want to go our, here with the The bad is that our quarterback regressed over a six-month period. Um, and I know small sample size of one game and the play calling was not fantastic. Um, 70% of the blame on Thursday night goes to Matt Nagy. And uh, I'd give a good 30 of it. If I could give more than 100, I'd give, I'd give both of them 70% of the blame. And I know makes no sense that I should be giving 50-50 yeah, blame. They both, but they both deserve more than half of the blame in that loss. I'm also um, going to throw this in there. The offensive line has to have some form of the blame thrown on them as well. And I think totally. I've said this to a – I'm not sure if I've texted with you about this, but I've talked to this about my dad and a few other people. That Of all the, the position groups, of all the people that are going to suffer the most from not playing preseason reps, not getting those reps, I truly do believe it's the offensive line because I think that is the hardest position to really gel especially with, you know, live game reps. I mean, you can get in the same routine with your offensive line when you're going up against the same defense, the same group mm-hmm. every day, but you really don't. That's really more of a unit than any other group. I mean, obviously the wide receivers are a unit, but when it comes down to your one-on-one matchup, or if you're if you're an offensive line, you have to be all five. You have the running back or the tight end. All six of you have to be on the same exact page doing your job or else the entire, yeah. you know, group is going to crumble. And I think we saw that a little bit the other night. It's there were some a- sloppy double teams. There's some sloppy pass protection, and Mitch has got to be better in the pocket. But there were some times early on where he was getting a lot of pressure, and kind of right away he had to bail out. I think that affected him a little bit later on in his quick feet and happy feet getting out of the pocket. Outside of Cody Whitehair, you could circle 10 plays for each one of those guys up front where it was just pure failure. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, sloppy double teams, bad technique. Um, And I think that's where, like you said, in preseason, that's where you do get – that spacing down, especially with some new pieces. Um, and that's when you can then use that technique. But if yeah. you're in the wrong spot, you can't employ technique the way you need it to. Um, Mitch was not given the time he needed to on a lot of throws. But even on the throws that he was given time, looked shaky, um, sailed a few balls. Now, I know we have all these weapons, but Mitch is dealing with smaller targets in Taylor mm-hmm. Gabriel, in Tariq Cohen, in um, I think Anthony Miller's sub six feet, right? I think he's really, really the only big, like, big, true big target he has to throw to is Allen Robinson. The rest you kind of categorize as normal or smaller. So the way you throw the ball to these different targets should be dictated by the target you're throwing to. That has to be another thing that Mitch is able to recognize. Yes, you can throw a ball up top to Allen Robinson and essentially tell him to go get it over a defender in one-on-one. You can't do that with Taylor Gabriel. If it's mm-hmm. up the seam, you got to put it on his numbers. Um, yeah. There's just not that There's not that ability. So a couple, couple throws were sailed by Mitch, but the play calling was absolutely it was just – 
it was horrible and it was there's inconceivable was the word I was looking for. It was absolutely inconceivable to throw the ball that many times, to not target Tariq Cohen at all in the screen game, to not hand the ball to Tariq Cohen at all, to open up with that shoddy little wing T motion pitch play to Tariq Cohen, of just fully set the tone for what that was. That was the only handoff he was given, and he did obviously muffed it, and you know he had to fall on it, and he lost it. That was the only attempted handoff to Tariq Cohen all night. He did not have a single carry, which is just, I believe that's, that's inexcusable. And I, I, we talked a little bit about it last week when we talked about the Notre Dame Louisville game, how Ian book had a little bit of a trend in big games to have happy feet and, you know, be a little bit panicky. I'm on, I like Matt Nagy. I think he's the long-term head coach of the Chicago bears. I'm not sure that he's the guy I want running this team. I think he's right for this group, this young team, this young mindset. That said, in his last three very important games where he's been calling the offense, you go back to the Chiefs game against the Titans, that playoff game where they had the big lead and then lost. You go to the Eagles game, you go to this game. There's an, there's a trend here of him abandoning the run, abandoning his stud running back and trying to get too cute with things and it coming back to cost them. He completely abandoned Kareem Hunt in that Titans game. They ended up losing that game. He completely abandoned Tariq Cohen in the Eagles game. Ended up losing that. I think Tyquan Mizell and Benny Cunningham carried the ball more than Tariq Cohen did. In this game, Tariq Cohen had eight touches, all receptions. In his last two games, Tariq Cohen has a total of 12 touches. That's not acceptable. Tariq Cohen lined up more as a wide receiver on Thursday night than he did as a running back. I know he's your, he's your toy and you want to get him out there and be creative with him, but when it comes down to it, his biggest asset is being in the backfield, whether that's getting carries, you know, sneaking out, uh, out into the flat, Running routes mm-hmm. from the backfield, that's where you can kind of hide him a little bit and have him pop out of nowhere. Whereas if you're lined up in the slot against the corner, I love Tariq Cohen. He's not a wide receiver. That should be more of a gimmicky type thing you do. He should be in the backfield 80% of his plays. I, I get splitting him out and looking for a matchup outside because when you split that running back outside, it's something that the Patriots do endlessly. They have for the last decade. They split that running back outside and whatever the defense does in coverage, that essentially tells Mitch pre-snap what the coverage is. If they split Tariq Cohen to the slot, you're not getting that read. If you split him out and they trail him with a linebacker, you know it's man-to-man. If they split him out and they just shell him with the DB right in front of him, you know it's zone. It's an easy way way for a quarterback to get a pre-snap read on the defense. I totally understand that. But put the guy behind the tackles, put him between the tackles and let him run the ball a few times. That also goes... For um, excuse me, for David Montgomery, who I believe ran the ball six times, six not times box for, score right six now. times for eighteen yards, and I, I got a and had a some couple of his runs really were a nice looking runs. I mean, it's it's to not I, allow him to get any momentum, to not allow him to get into the flow of a ball game in his NFL debut. It was it was a shame. I mean, for a foil to that is I just got done the other night covering Monday Night Football Raiders versus Broncos, and they let Josh Jacobs get into a foe. They let him get into He was the best player on the field in that game. He was one of the best players in the league this weekend. 100-plus yards, two touchdowns. He's the only guy to do that since LaDainian Tomlinson in 2001, I believe. So he got into some rarefied air because John Gruden called those plays. Now, John Gruden also took a couple shots downfield because the defense had to come up and the safeties had to get into the box and respect Josh Jacobs. It's still, I don't care. You could split it out and run four wide. It's still just allowing you space to run the ball. Mm-hmm. It is a game that is predicated off of the run. You can't do anything if you can't run the ball. And this willingness, like you said, to abandon the run as quickly as Nagy does is very pl- problematic. Yeah, I mean, it's, you said it's the old, the, the most age-old football offensive strategy in the world. The run opens up the pass. It opens up the play action. If you are able to establish the run, you have to have to, they have to bring more people in the box. It's just going to create nothing but space and less confusion for your quarterback. And as bad as Mitch was, I'm not by any means abandoning him, but he still needs a little bit of help at times. He needs a little bit of assistance getting into his groove. You know, sometimes that relies on the defense kind of adjusting to what the Bears are doing well. And if they're running the football well, that's going to open things up and make things a lot less confusing for Mitch because they do have a very good group of receivers who if they're in one-on-one situations, I think I trust a lot of them to win those one-on-one situations. That's going to do nothing but help Mitch. And especially, I, I forgot where I was listening to this. I think it might have been Waddle and Sylvie yesterday or the day before. 
breaking down the all 22, the Packers defense, you want to guess how many times they were in their base set on Thursday night? Twice. The big fat zero. They did not, they were in yeah. nickel and dime literally all night. And if you can't see that as a head coach, as a play caller, be like, hey, they're, they're splitting out next to, you know, they have an extra DB on the field. The box is a little bit more open. Let's really try and establish this run. Let's, let's make them bring in that extra linebacker. Let's, let's make them bring that corner, that D-back into the box to play that run. I, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know if that's on Nagy. I don't know if that's Mark Helfrich's not seeing that up in the booth. Being like, hey, man, we really need to do this. I know you're calling the plays, but this is what they're doing. This is going to help us. That's not acceptable. Uh, now, I don't, I don't want to jump to any grand conclusions about this offense, about Mitch, but I will say this. I don't think the skill set of our quarterback matches what our offensive coordinator and our head coach want to do. I really don't. I think Mitch is a good quarterback and a good enough quarterback to win with if you call plays around him, if you set him up to succeed in the pass Mm -hmm. game. He's not Patrick Mahomes. He is not going to be able to succeed throwing the ball 45 to 50 times a game. That's what Mark Helfrich has always done in his career. I mean, I know we're talking college, we're talking Oregon Ducks, we're talking crazy numbers, but that's largely what he's done. Now, there there were quarterbacks, obviously, before Pat Mahomes. You had Alex Smith, but Alex Smith was always way more of a mobile quarterback, kind of get out there and slant West Coast style than anyone ever gave him credit for. I don't know if Mitch is your West Coast quarterback. I mean, you don't need that to win. Carson Wentz is a pocket passer. I mean, we can, we'll get there later. Mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson can be a pocket passer. Uh, Patrick Mahomes can do everything. But you're, you can succeed if you call the right plays for your guy understanding his talent. And I'm not saying he's at a talent deficiency. I'm just saying he's better at certain things than other. We cannot put him in the position to throw the ball 45 times a game. And I think his coaching staff did a terrible job of doing that. I know, like you said, they have certain offenses they like to, you know, uh, that they've been calling for years and they're used to but. Mitch is the best thing he's done since he's been here, since he's took over way too early, you know, what was week five in his rookie year. He's always at his best when he's on the move, when he's rolling out of the pocket, when they're moving the pocket, kind of letting him reset that. They didn't do that at all Thursday night. They had him dropping back. They yeah. had him trying to stand in the pocket and be a pocket passer. That's not what he does. He's an Actually, improviser. No, he's at, he's at his best when he it. does that. They did it once because I remember yelling. I think that's why I said they did it one, I believe they called yeah. it one time. I believe he, they rolled him out one time. Quarter, fourth quarter, left hash, rolled right, cut the field in half, gave him three options on a flood play. I believe, who did he hit on an out route? He had a nice little, like, 10-yard out route. I screamed at the television, cut the field in half, make it easy on him. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Again, understanding the skill set and the progression of your quarterback and putting him in the, in the position to succeed. And you guess know, what? If you're doing that well, if you're moving him out of the pocket and things are moving well that way, that, A, that's going to open things up on the backside. And B, that's going to open up the running game when you take a little bit shot. more for you. Because if you have that, A, you're going to be able to take your shot over the top. And then if you have de- defensive ends worried about setting the edge and containing the quarterback, not letting him roll out, guess what that's going to do? They're going to come upfield. That's going to open up the running lines for David Montgomery to recon Mike Davis. Completely the inverted look in terms of the way the play was drawn up, but the deep ball that Rodgers hit on their one touchdown drive was a design. It was a mm-hmm. roll left, throw right. He went through his progressions. He, like a great professional does, looked the defense to the left side, threw the ball to the right, and there's your success. But as you yeah. said, rolling one way, opening up the defense over the top. They're not like – these are not new ideas. Not- and sometimes I think – Sometimes I think these coaches and coordinators who have these fresh new ideas and all of these wrinkles and quirks that do work get away from the foundation of football. And I think getting back to the foundation of football, and I'm not saying line it up in the I formation and run power like the Patriots did all mm-hmm. that season. I'm not saying that, but working in the run game, working in interesting runs, working in you know, momentum setters working in pacing plays is super important in getting your quarterback into a into a momentum. At no point in that game did the offense stack chunk yardage seven yards at a time, and that that's no. when you build touchdown drives. Honestly, so think, you know, obviously we could belabor this, but I think we know what needs to be done, and yeah. a lot needs to be done from a quarterback standpoint. A lot needs to be done from a 
offensive line standpoint. A lot needs to be done from a coaching standpoint. The weapons are there and the weapons are ready. I think, I think that's what has allowed me to kind of rest my head. And I, I, I guess I don't want to move on too quickly. I guess moving on a little bit to this week, not quite. We've seen bad performances from Mitch before in the past. Not exactly this bad, but I mean, that, the, like the Arizona game last year sticks out to me as a pretty brutal performance. They really only scored a couple times that game because of the defense kind of flipping the field on them, which is good as the defense one was. That was kind of one thing they weren't able to do. The Rams game, obviously they won that game 15-6 to six at home, but Mitch was pretty terrible that game. We've seen him bounce back in a lot of these bad efforts with pretty big, pretty good performances. After that Rams game, he beat the Packers at home, played a really, really good football game. They won that 24-17. After that Cardinals game, obviously it was against the Bucks last year, but he went out and had the statistically best game of his career, 48-10 to win, I think six touchdown passes. So I guess that's what you're kind of looking for this week. He doesn't have the cushy environment. He's actually going to go to a very tough place to win. I know Denver didn't look very good. Um, against uh, what was it, Oakland in, in Oakland on Monday night, but that's a team yeah. where I don't think he's lost at home in week two since like the seventies, and it's going to be ninety. It's going to be you know, 80, 90 degrees in Denver in that altitude, so it's going to be a really tough challenge. But I think that's what you're looking for out of Mitch this week and the play calling is to bounce back from a bad performance and be able to put that behind you because if they're going to have a shot to do what they want to do this year, this isn't a must-win game, but this is a very, very important game. You really don't want to start over two. And I get what you're saying, but I don't buy into half of that altitude BS. I know it's a real thing. I know it's science, but I also know that all. Well, I'm not saying that's an excuse to players, not win. No, no, no. I know, but all 92 players are playing in the same sort of conditions. Thirty uh-huh. percent. Um, I'm just ballparking it because that's the usual number. Thirty to forty percent of the Broncos roster is new and has never played a game at altitude either. Yeah, it's a it's a winnable game. I saw that team. You need to go out there and establish dominance over your ex coordinator because that's always a storyline and that's always interesting when the coordinator comes back and has to play as head coach. It's mm-hmm. gonna a bunch is gonna be made about it. Don't buy into the storylines. Don't buy into any of it. Go out there. Run the freaking football. Stop them on defense. Joe Flacco is bad. He's not a decision maker. He turns into a pumpkin when he leaves the pocket. Force mm-hmm. him out of the pocket. Force the ball out of his hands and create turnovers. I think we need to talk about the defensive side of the ball and the great job that they did in holding Aaron Rodgers and one of the best quarterbacks ever with the 10 points last week. At the same time, you've got to Really just turnovers. one big play. Yeah, that's the one thing that they ball. didn't do. Stop. Stopping the offense from scoring is not going to be enough if this offense continues to struggle. Mm-hmm. I know last year we took the ball away at a record-setting rate. Not saying you have to do that, but you need to go get that ball at least once a game. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. That it's the one thing they really didn't do Thursday night, but I think that was the that's the bright spot, bright spot of the game that not a lot of people are talking about simply just because of how glaringly weak the offense was and the play calling was, but you, you did see some flashes of greatness from that defensive end. Uh, my guy, Roy Robertson Harris, I thought was had after Khalil Mack, because I know he didn't, I don't think he registered a sack, but he was in on everything. Uh, Roy Robertson Harris and Leonard Floyd were two guys we both kind of called on to say, you know, if they have big years, this pass rush is going to be elite. And they did. They had big nights on Thursday night. And I think we saw Monday night, I like the Oakland Raiders. I think they're a nice, young, up-and-coming team. Cleveland Farrell's obviously their early first-round draft pick. They like them a lot. The Oakland Raiders There's more talent on the Bears roster. They they don't have a great pass rush. And they were able to get to Joe Flacco just about whenever they wanted to. They were pressuring him just about all night. Uh, I think I saw what Juwan James is going to be out. He got hurt that Monday night game. That that was their big addition at right tackle. I don't think he's playing on on Sunday. So that's a big cog in, in an already weak offensive line that's not going to be playing. The Bears need to get to Joe Flacco, and they need to get to him often because when you get to him often, he's going to make bad decisions. We've seen that throughout his career, and he'll probably start turning the ball over. And the inverse of that, the Raiders offensive line, who last year were ranked last by pro football focus in the pass game, held the Broncos to zero sacks. Derek Carr was touched once Mm -hmm. on Monday night, and that's a pass rush. That's a a pass rush. Von Miller. So I think allowing those guys to shoot up field and, like you said, creating those lanes in the run game is really going to dictate the outcome of this one. So um, we'll see how it shakes out. I'm very excited to, again, watch this 
Bears team trying to execute, but uh, not scared by any means of uh, of this Broncos team. No. And, oh, uh, also, side uh, note, Matt. Uh, you know, teams always send scouts to the games the week before, so I'm sure. up in the press box and I see uh, the Bears scout walk in in his just full Bears regalia, and you know, I Bears. let him do his job, but. During a TV timeout, I, I walked over to him, and he was on the end seat on the rows of the press box, so I kind of knelt down next to him, and I, I forget how I posed the question. There was something along the lines of, uh, what's the temperature at Hallis Hall? And he looked at me and gave me a look like the boys are hungry. So um, he said, everything's going to – we'll be all right. We'll be all right. I told him, yeah. born and raised Chicago, uh, what, what's the temperature at Hallis Hall? He goes, everything's going to be all right. I think everyone's a little frustrated right now, but he gave me the, the boys are hungry look. So. Yeah. Um, Good things. Good I, things. I, I, I'm not totally certain either. One, one more quick, I guess, factor going into this game, last game too, what, what the situation is with Trey Burton. Matt Nagy was really kind of noncommittal to either way. Um, Can you tell me I was right about Adam Shaheen? Are you ready to say that yet? It's – I'm not – I what, – what is your – Yes, I think your, that was a yes. Wait, wait, no, what was, was your official yes, opinion yes. on Adam, Adam Shaheen? I hated when they drafted him. I, I, I mean, it's, I'm not going to lie to you. It seems to be trending that way, but I, I'm talking about in certain. They're two different tight end positions. Um, I mean, he was, project, he was a project. He was a project. I, I'm not. Dis- I'm not. He was a project that I was not on board for. And you cannot. You cannot be predictable. You cannot have Trey Burton in when you're passing and Adam Shaheen in when you're running. It's the NFL. You need a tight end that can do both. If we have two tight ends that can't do both, that one guy does one and one guy does other, then we don't have a tight end. Well, that's fair. Um, it, it, in this passing game and their passing scheme, without having Trey Burton on that in that offense, I think that also. I mean, Ben Broniker is a special teams player at best, and I think Trey Burton opens up so much for that offense. You look at the these similar offenses to this one. You know, the, the Eagles, the Chiefs, really the, the common denominators. They kind of have that elite tight end to go take up space in the middle to be a guy who needs to create focus in the middle for defensive points to. to focal points for them to focus on, excuse me. And that opens up a lot of, a lot for the bears as well. And I think if there's one, a glaring weakness need that was not uh, addressed this off season, whether you want to call Eddie Pinera, who I guess was one for one. And I, if we, if you want, we can talk about how they didn't trust him to kick a 51 yard field goal, which was odd. Um, I, they didn't address the tight end position at all in the draft and free agency. They just kind of assumed that Trey Burton, who's, a guy who admittedly deals with anxiety, who's had injury issues in the past, would be there the whole time. And I think they miss him a lot in that offense, in the middle of that offense, because yeah. I think it opens so many things up. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, another big one, as you said. Not a must-win, but uh, they get more and more grave as the season goes on as you start to stack up losses. So mm-hmm. another big one this weekend against the Broncos. Uh, Matt, I'm predicting a win as uh, as I will for the rest of the season. I want. I, will, I think. What, what can, you, I think, this, a final I think this talent. I think this talent pool can beat any team in the NFL. Um, final score: Bears twenty-seven. I hate that number. Bears twenty-four. Broncos ten. I, see, I actually had something similar. I'm going twenty-four to twelve. Like twenty-four to twelve. There's a lot of field goals there. I think they're going to be able to move the ball a little bit. Uh, just because the, the defense tends to be sucking wind a little bit more in the altitude than the offense. But I think when it comes down to it, the, the Bears' red zone defense will be fine. I think they'll kick some field goals, and I think the Bears will score just fine. Yeah. Um, but, Matt, a lot of action around the NFL. We say we uh, give our thoughts briefly on each game with you know, our annual NFL whip around. Hit the music! You know, I love that. <laughs> Where we All start? right, Matt, starting off... Starting off on Sunday with the Browns and the Titans. The Titans take down the Browns 43-13. to The Baker Corporation, the Browns dog pound ticker tape parade, put on ice for at least a week. What'd you make of it? Uh, I got to give some credit here to, to, I guess, our friend, you know him, Ryan McGuffey back at NBC Sports Chicago. The, since, since the week one lines came out and the Titans were five, six-point dogs, I think he put a bet on them in July. Uh, basically yeah. saying, you know, Browns are good, they're talented, first time playing with expectations, Titans are a team that historically under Mike Rabel, I guess last year under Mike favorite, beat some good teams, play good fundamental football, that's going to be a tough game for them. That defense looked fantastic, Derrick Henry looked really good, Baker looked a little bit uncertain in the pocket, um, they looked like a team that didn't really know how to deal with expectation, even though they do have the battle. 18 penalties for however many yards, that's, that's <coughs> completely unacceptable. 
43 to 13 um, says a lot more about the preparation. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what the what the feelings are around the Browns right now, but uh, Freddie Kitchens uh, as a head coach, we'll see how it works out. Moving on, Ravens taking on the Dolphins. You called this your lock of the century. It was your first win of the season, moving you to 1-1 one one in our locks of the week. I am 0-2 as I rode the Bears last week. We'll get to this week's picks later on in the show. But Matt, 59 to 10, five passing touchdowns out of Lamar Jackson, 324 yards through the air and just six yards on the ground, flipping the script on the perception of Lamar Jackson. Guy can sling the rock too. Lamar's arm looked great. I'm still going to kind of reserve judgment on how great of a thrower he is because he basically went up against a team that isn't really a team this year that's going to win two, three games. Um, so I, I'm going to reserve some judgment till we see him play, you know, real competition. But he was hitting open receivers. He was hitting uh, Marquise Brown and Stride on a lot of those deep balls. So he, he looked very good. Uh, still waiting to see what he does against, you know, a, a better defense, better competition. But man, those Dolphins look terrible. And they Marquise, afterwards, you got agents that are saying, players calling agents saying, "I want out." That that seems like a really bad situation. Marquise Hollywood Brown, four receptions, 140. 37 yards, two touchdowns in his NFL debut. The Oklahoma wide receiver and cousin of Antonio Brown looks like he could have a lot of big. He's got that big play ability. A lot to Sean Jackson. I don't know how, how much you could use him in the middle of the field, um, but uh, he's going to be a deep threat weapon all season long. He was a late round pickup for myself, probably available on most of your waiver wires and fantasy. Go squad. Thanks for the fancy advice. All right, now Falcons and Vikings. The Vikings out to a 28-12 to start to the season, 1-0, and uh, just proving how deep the NFC North is and how tough it's going to be to win games in this division this year. Uh, only caught a little bit of it, but it looked like the Vikings. A little bit of ru- run, a little bit of pass. Delvin looked dangerous. Uh, they're going to be tough to beat. I mean, that's really what stuck out to me was how dangerous Delvin Cook looked. Uh, you talk about a team establishing the run, the anti-Bears here. But Kirk Cousins threw the ball 10 times. He was 8 of 10. For 98 yards, and then you have Cook had 21 carries on at 11. If he's he finally looked for the first time healthy and back to full strength after that ACL injury, and if he's if, if this is the player the Vikings got, you know, watch out. They're going to be a really, really dangerous football team on the Falcons side. I just I don't know what to make of the Atlanta Falcons anymore. I just don't. Another one I don't know what to make of Bills and the Jets. The Bills win 17-16 in a. Uh... Uh, touchdown led drive by Josh Allen with about three minutes left in this one. The Jets, I think, more disappointed than anything. Everyone had some building expectations around that team. They look like the Jets. The Bills look like the Bills. This is usually the game we get out of the two. Uh, I mean, that, that game really changed when C.J. Mosley got hurt. It, he was the mm-hmm. typical Jets big free agent spend, at least on the defensive end. Obviously, they brought in Le'Veon Bell, too. Uh, but he looked every bit of you know worth that contract, and he goes down. I think the biggest takeaway for me is I know it's year two, but everyone still wants to say Sam Darnold's going to be great. Sam Darnold's going to be elite quarterback. His team won a turnover battle four to one here, and he lost seventeen to sixteen. That's something that great quarterbacks just can't really do. So I'm I'm still kind of on the fence on what we're seeing from Sam Darnold. Um, I believe in him. I think uh, I think that helps some big games this season. Moving on, Eagles and Redskins starting off the season in a divisional matchup. The Eagles, after a slow start, going down, I believe, what was 20 to 7 at the half, and at one point, 17 to nothing. Yeah. The Eagles go on to win 32 to 27. Carson Wentz hit a couple of deep balls to Deshaun Jackson to really open this one up. Uh, Eagles, while I was ready to write them off 10 minutes into the season, look like one of, the, one of the NFC's best when they're clicking. Uh, Deshaun Jackson's infusion into that offense, I think, is going to. We, we talk about, you know, the deep home run threat like they did with Marquise Brown. Deshaun Jackson's been doing it for, it seems like, 20 years now. I'm probably going to do it for 20 and more. But yeah, eight receptions, people, 154, two touchdowns. He really opened things up for that offense. A lot of people had him written off, but he was in an anemic offense in Tampa Bay. And I think that there was a lot of feeling around Philadelphia this preseason that he's back and he's kind of better than ever. And I wouldn't say better than ever, but he's just as good as ever. And it was kind of hush-hush because of all the other happy to be back, too. Yeah, there were all the other storylines around the league, and it was just like, no, that's Deshaun, and he still takes the top off of defenses. Yeah, so, and we saw uh, that. Going to be tough uh, tough to match up with. The Rams and the Panthers. The Rams squeaking one out past the Panthers, 30-27. to 27. Uh, Jared Goff, I don't know if he looked like uh, all that guaranteed money, but he did uh, manage the game, much like I would like to see Mitch Trubisky manage the game. But uh, 
uh, once again, I digress. Uh, the Panthers look strong. Cam Newton's again going to be their weakness with Christian McCaffrey being their safety blanket. Yeah, Christian McCaffrey is, he can really just do it all. He's so incredibly talented, but man, that guy takes so many hits, and I'm kind of afraid that he's going to yeah. be one of those shooting star type careers with how often he gets the ball. I mean, you talk about, like, on, the, on the other side, you see, excuse me, with Todd Gurley kind of having that bad knee already. Sean McVay's really limiting touches, kind of saving him for, you know, picking his spots. The Panthers are not doing that with Christian McCaffrey. He had led them in carries, I believe, led them in receptions as well. He's just going to get the ball, and they're going to use every bit of him for the five years of that contract, and then probably just let him walk, because I don't, I yeah. don't think he's going to be the same player he is two years from now than he is right now, but man, while he's getting the ball and doing this and still good, he is as dangerous with the ball out of the backfield as there is anyone in this league. Uh, 19 total touches for, excuse me, 29 total touches for Christian McCaffrey, 128 yards on the ground and 81 yards receiving two total touchdowns. So a complete day that you expect out of Christian McCaffrey. The Chiefs and the Jaguars, Chiefs win it 40-26. to 26. Uh, Despite uh, Tyreek Hill going down early in this one, Pat Mahomes lights it up, I believe, 378 yards to the air and three touchdowns. Uh, LaShawn McCoy looked really comfortable sliding into that role, getting a few touches. Uh, with the Chiefs. So again, that offense leading the way for Kansas City. You talked about uh, a fantasy steal in, in Hollywood Brown. I, we don't talk fantasy football much on this podcast, but I think LaShawn Sammy Watkins? Was, I was going to say LaShawn McCoy. I, Sammy Watkins had a Sean great McCoy. game. He's a very talented receiver. I don't think he's going to be like, you know, nine receptions for 203 TDs when he was just kind of mm-hmm. running running pretty free. Um, but LaShawn McCoy, you know, being reunited with Andy Reid in that offense he knows so well was such a great fit there. I think he's going to be a really nice player. I'm, I'm at the Jag side. It's Nick Foles. I know I got right, paid all that money. I know I got paid all that money, and obviously I don't feel bad for a guy for getting all that guaranteed money. But man, you kind of feel for the guy every time he seems to get that chance. You know, he yeah. they have Carson Wentz, or he gets hurt here, and he he made a really nice throw on that ball. He got hurt. Uh, I am excited to see Gardner Minshew, though. I, I, I'm not, that's Are you? you probably know living out with. I'm, no, yeah, I am because I watched him so often in Pac-12 after dark the last couple of years in Mike Leach's system that I grew to like him. And you know, he came out and he played a really, really good game in relief. So I'm, I'm excited to see him go forward. I have no interest in watching Gardner Minshew play well, football. I Moving just, on. Don't give him crap for his name. It's not his fault. That's his name. Colts and the Chargers. Chargers again in a nice close ball game, winning this one in overtime. Uh, with a, I believe, Austin Eckler ran it in, if I'm not oh, yeah. mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, on an Eckler touchdown. 30-24, the final. Um, the Colts looked solid in, ap- in the absence of uh, Andrew Luck and his, at least the energy and the skill that he brings to the game, but uh, they still look like a team that's going to win some ball games, and I still believe in Jacoby Brissett, so... Uh, I think Marlon Mack and the way he runs the ball gives you a chance to win. So that was my big takeaway. Marlon Mack can still tote it. And uh, Phillip Rivers and all his kids, um, they can still score it. The the Colts are going to be a tough out all year. I'm not sure they're going to go to the playoffs. I'm not sure they're going to win in that division. But I'm not sure they're going to get blown out at all either. They're going to compete in all the games they're in because there is so much talent around them, around that quarterback position, which they built around Andrew Luck, which obviously is not there anymore. Uh, other big takeaway is Melvin Gordon was the big storyline heading into this game, how he's you know, not playing, he's holding out till week six or eight, whatever. Uh, I think this game proves that unless you have a running back named Zeke Elliott or Saquon Barkley, you just don't pay running backs because the, the two yeah. guys that dominated this game were Marlon Mack and Austin Eckler, who we kind of knew from last year, but really just more guys in a system rather than big name running backs, and they dominated this ball game. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them in the same bucket. I think Marlon Mack has top-level talent. I think Marlon Mack is in that second 2A, 2B tier, um, along with the likes of, uh, I don't know who I'd put him with, um, maybe Minnesota back, um, why am I blanking right now? Dalvin Cook. Uh, Dalvin Cook, maybe maybe he can he can be in that Dalvin Cook conversation. I think Marlon Mack's a really good back, but like you said, Austin Eckler, um, little known from from a year ago. Seahawks and the Bengals. Seahawks survive a push from the Bengals, twenty-one to twenty. Uh, a big drive late in this one, or early in the fourth quarter, by Russell Wilson capped this one off, twenty-one to twenty. But uh, they did not look like the imposing force that many had them drawn up to be. Yeah, including myself. Uh, that was a. A weird game. I didn't get to see uh, a ton of it, but from what I did watch, it was just Russell Wilson kind of looked like 
he missed Doug Baldwin a little bit. They were never really able to get that running game going. Look at Chris Carson here. I'm looking at the box score. 15 carries, 46 yards, and one of those carries was a 21-yarder, so they weren't able to get the run game going at all. Um, the Bengals looked at least a little bit more exciting. Andy Dalton's going to hinder them a little bit, and he should never be throwing the ball 51 times in a game. That said, he threw the ball 51 times in a game, and not one of them went to the Seahawks' defense, which I think probably says something about how badly the Seahawks' defense played and might miss Earl Thomas. Um, but that was just that was an odd game. That's, that's kind of all there is to that. Yeah. Uh, Giants and Cowboys starting off in a divisional matchup, and the Cowboys predictably whipping up on the Giants, 35-17. to 17. My biggest takeaway in this one was after a, I wouldn't even call it a tumultuous, <clears throat> excuse me, offseason, but an offseason that included three potential holdouts for the Cowboys did not hinder them one bit. Amari mm-hmm. Cooper went off. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott looked like he didn't miss a beat. He joined the team five days before the game. Dak Prescott is, is totally in a pay, uh, F-U-pay-me mode right now, so you're going to see his best every week. Looked like a complete team, and the return of Jason Witten just, for some reason, made me really mad, but another successful game out of Jason Witten catching 10-yard outs, scoring touchdowns, and getting first downs. I mean, I think this this does have a lot to do with that the Cowboys are very good. I think this also shows that the Giants are just not a, they're not a good football team. Um, there's not really much talent outside of Saquon Barkley there. Anymore, Sterling Shepard too. Evan Ingram's fine. Um, I'm going to be interested to see in how Jerry Jones goes about this whole Dak situation now, though, because I think he wants to be there, and I think he's. I mean, if he even hits free agency, as long as the Cowboys match an offer, he'll be back. But do you pay Dak now? Because I'm not sure his stock has ever been higher, or do you kind of wait a little while and see if it maybe goes down a little bit throughout the season? I just don't know. I. I think you've got to get him into a mind state where he likes where he's at because what's around him. And you're not going to be able to keep everything around him. You're not going to keep him protected the way you have him protected right now if he takes one of these crazy contracts. <laughs> he wants his money, but does he want to win and get his money? Because if that's the case, then you sign a, and I'm not saying that Jared Goff's deal is small, but you sign a deal with that structure. Mm-hmm. 90% guaranteed money shy of being the highest paid player in the league. Yeah. Like you have to you have to make some sort of sacrifice. Get your guaranteed money and take a little less so they can still pay guys around you. I think that's the ideal out boys in this Dak Prescott situation. We're, we're going to see how it goes. It's always uh, contract negotiations for stars under Jerry Jones are always fun to watch. I'm excited to see how that one hey, develops. Matt, it wouldn't it wouldn't be week one without a tie. Lions and the Cardinals tying at 27. Kyler Murray actually orchestrated multiple drives there in the second half, scoring 18 fourth quarter points to tie this thing up and get it to an overtime tie. But uh, he looked like what I expected of him in the first three quarters and then kind of came out in that fourth quarter and looked nice, threw a lot of little dink and dunk short passes, moved the ball down the field. Um, but uh, a tie. I think yeah. that's all I have for you is they tied. Yeah. Tyler kind of took what the defense gave him in the second half. I mean, it's a lot easier for quarterbacks to move the ball and kind of take those dink and dunk routes when the defense is sitting back because they're up, you know, 17. But uh, yeah. I think the story there was, like you said, tale of two halves for Kyler. Uh, he looked terrible in the first half through some awful, an awful interception, and then looked better in the second. And, and it, it's two teams that aren't going to really matter in the grand scheme of things, and they tied, so good for them. Uh, we got a tie, and then we moved on to the 49ers and the Buccaneers, 31-17. to The Niners scoring two defensive touchdowns. A pick six, six from Richard Sherman, and then a pick six from Akello Witherspoon to seal the deal. Uh, the Buccaneers looked shoddy at times. Jimmy Garoppolo looked shoddy, but the defensive effort was enough to get it done. George Kittle's still the best tight end in the league, and if uh, Jimmy continues to target him, that's your that's your prime. That's your. I, we're going full fantasy here, but that's your prime fantasy guy. If you can trade for him, if you got him, be happy. I believe Jimmy targeted him. 11 or 12 times on Sunday and that's not counting four plays that he was targeted that were called back due to penalty. I'm going to go with Jameis is who we thought he was. Uh, <laughs> he stinks and he should not be back with the Buccaneers after this year. I believe his contract's up. And I, I didn't get to see a ton of this game so I kind of wanted to ask you what the feeling was with Jimmy G because that was not a very good Buccaneers team. I know they put up 31 points, but like you said, 14 of those were defensive. And if you're looking across that line, it's really not all of that impressive. Looks more like a, 
a game manager than a, a well, the line does. I'm not saying him because I haven't seen the game, but the line looks like one of a game manager, not really a you know star quarterback. I'll like, give you the good and the bad. Um, anytime a quarterback has a reconstructed knee, you worry about his comfortability in the pocket. Yeah. Jimmy looked really good in the pocket moving around. There were a couple plays where he bailed out to avoid um, contact. That happened. I, I don't blame him for that, but um, really moved through the pocket and through his progressions well. The only thing was the bad was his pick was as bad as it gets. Um, okay. Misread a cover three through a late out route to an outside receiver that you or I could have intercepted. It was mm-hmm. a bad decision. So Jimmy still does have the propensity to make a bad decision here or there. Um, the jury's out. The jury will be out until he can stack a couple big games on top of each other, but uh, he might be, again, what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Okay. Patriots and Steelers. Patriots 33, Steelers 3. Um, the ben machine keeps looks like churning. The machine keeps churning. Josh Gordon looked fantastic without incident. They love Rex Burkhead and handed him the ball and chewing up those yards. They can do it on the ground. They can do it through the air. They can stop you on defense. Um, and the Steelers looked really bad. Um, ben Roethlisberger looked really bad. Ben, ben Roethlisberger looked almost disinterested. When they went down, you know, 7-0, 4-2, was it 10 nothing early? He looked just kind of checked out. Or am I, this am might I, be it. I, I, I don't want to ever write off a guy, especially someone who has had the success that Ben Roethlisberger has had in this league. But if, like you said, if he's disinterested, this is it. I don't know if we see him as the starter week 16 for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm not going to write him off for this entire season yet, but I think with you know how he's kind of started to look the last couple of years, I feel like the last three or four years, it's been a storyline we're always considering retiring. The year's not going to go as well for them this year as it has in the years past. And they didn't even make the playoffs last year at 9-7. and seven, Or was it 9-6-1? and one? Um, if it's another year like last year and it's just kind of standing in the mud, I don't think he's back next year. I really don't. He looked as disinterested and disinvolved in the game as I've ever seen. And the same same side of the coin, I don't know if that's the right phrase here, but down 20 to nothing and Mike Tomlin on fourth and whatever it was, I think fourth and seven, kicks a field goal and keeps it a three-score game like midway through the, th- midway through the third, down 20 to nothing. What the hell was that? Yeah. And that was just uh, it was really strange all the way around. <laughs> Juju looked fine. Um, I think he's going to be just fine. But that was that was kind of about it for that Steelers Steelers team. Then we moved to Monday night and things got crazy. The game between the Texans and the Saints, no doubt, the game of the week. The Saints pulling this one off in dramatic fashion, thirty to twenty-eight. Will Lutz with a game-winning fifty-eight-yard field goal that came on the heels of a two-play 75-yard Deshaun Watson drive that came on the heels of a Drew Brees drive. It was just an unbelievable final four minutes of this football game. Yeah, uh, you said game of the week, which it absolutely was. We might have seen the game of the year. It was two fantastic quarterbacks dueling. We saw some great wide receiver play with Michael Thomas and uh, DeAndre Hopkins. Um, Both of those defenses at times kind of looked like they had, I don't want to say elite tendencies, but very good tendencies to them as well. And then they kind of, towards the end, things opened up. Um, mm-hmm. Those are two fun teams, and I think those are going to be be two teams we see competing in the playoffs come you know January. Absolutely. And then the nightcap, the final game of the week, the Raiders and the Broncos. Uh, we touched on this one briefly, but uh, the Raiders looked a lot better than people had expected from them. I think the Antonio Brown headlines all offseason distracted from the fact that they brought on a tackle in Trent Brown from the Patriots, that Colton mm-hmm. Miller got a year older, that Derek Carr has some weapons around him in uh, in Josh Jacobs and um, Tyrell Williams in the receiving game, and uh, special teams even looked really solid. So yeah. I think that uh, no one really gave them the credit that they were due because of the headlines that surrounded them. And the Broncos, I think, were given a little bit too much credit just because of the... Um, I don't know, the resume of Joe Flacco and the... Uh, I think a lot of it was, the that they shot out was opening up against the Raiders and the dysfunction of the Raiders. I think people gave the Broncos more credit than they deserved because of what was going on on the other side of the field, at least throughout the offseason, obviously. The Raiders start this one off 1-0, and but it looks like they will be without um, their first pick, or excuse me, yes, their first overall first pick in uh, Jonathan, Jonathan... Their first round pick yeah. in uh, Jonathan Abram, who... That's a tough tore one. his tore his labrum and rotator cuff in the first quarter and proceeded to go out there and still make I believe eight tackles um, play the rest of the game. So Gary, Gary, Gary is there, a, there an update, update on, on Gary on Conley is that 
all the x-rays came back negative. He's good. Um, no long withstanding injuries. I believe he automatically goes into the concussion protocol, Mm -hmm. but he came out and said, he'll be ready to go this week, which I think that they'll hold him for at least a week, but he is healthy and there are no um, serious lingering injuries after he did on that freak play, get them get kind of accordioned up there, which was kind of scary. Yeah. Good. Cause that looked like it, uh, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, that was week one in the NFL. Good times to be had. Plenty more to be had. Matt, just thrilled that the season is here and that we have all of this foosball to talk about. But um, right now, I think uh, I think I got to air a grievance, and it has nothing to do with the Bears. Speaking of the Oakland Raiders, it's a, it's a, it's a good tease here. Grievance time. Go ahead. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You can't handle the truth. Boy, have you lost your mind, because I'll help you find it. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, Matt. Um, much has been made throughout history about the Raiders fans and about the black hole and about the way that they revere their team. And I think we all understand that. I think we all have respect for that. And it was one of the great drawbacks to them leaving Oakland. I got to see it for the first time on Monday night firsthand. From the tailgate at 1 o'clock to in the stadium to the FAB chants going off after every completed pass in that stadium to the way that they come dressed and not even just in the black hole, but you saw the Chucky mask, um, Raider Vader, everyone. It, it is a groundswell of passion from that team. And if there is one place that deserves, excuse me, if there's one place that deserves an NFL franchise, it is Oak Fournia. The fact that they are losing this franchise, I've been given a whole nother lease and understanding on how much of a disservice this is to football, to football fans everywhere, and especially to Oakland. This place needs a team. This place needs the Raiders, and I think the Raiders need this fan base. And I think that you're going to see steps backwards when the move to Las Vegas is made. I just don't think that this is the franchise that needs to be moving to Vegas. Should there be a team in Vegas? Absolutely. There's money to be made. The owners love it. The owners love the idea. And it's going to be a success. Greatest fan bases in the game. And their team is being pried away from them. Being able to see it firsthand on Monday night was truly special. Because they weren't taken back by the fact that they're losing their team in 15 weeks. They more were celebrating the fact that we got games in Oakland for the rest of this season. And just that sort of understanding and that sort of joy out of this fan base is really special. When we think of the black hole and these fans, we think of darkness and maybe uh, evil and negativity and maybe rough and tumble fans. They were the nicest people I've ever met. Chucky high-fived me when I was coming out of the tunnel. Um, There was a guy who had horns coming out of his head, giving everyone high-fives on the concourse. These are just joyful psychos that are losing their team, and it's a real shame. That was my grievance. So I got, I guess, two things I want to ask you about that. First, uh, who is the I, – I, obviously, they, they wanted a new stadium, and that wasn't really happening. Is this more on the Raiders to blame? Or this, is this partially on the city not wanting to give them money, but not really trying to work hard to keep them there? Is it a little bit of both? Where does kind of more of the blame lie? I don't not know. Really know that? I don't know where to point the finger. Um, probably at Jerry Jones, to be honest with you. I don't know. Um, there was – I think it was the mixture of the the unknowing of the future of the stadium and, and the city's contract with the team, um, as well as a really, really big-time business opportunity in the desert mm-hmm. to build a stadium, to privately finance a stadium in the entertainment capital of the United States and, and move a team there. I mean – the Davis family had to initially had to essentially sign off on it at some point or another. So some blame needs to go there. Um, but um, I don't know if blame needs to be attributed. Um, I just feel like there's a disservice being done. Uh, and then I guess the more important question here, I think regarding Monday night's game, Oakland, all that is you rubbed elbows with one guy Fieri. Oh, Jesus. It was, tell me, tell us. It about was that. like, it was like seeing a unicorn. 
Like you weren't expecting, like, like you're walking down, let's say Clark street and you just see a unicorn. You're standing in soldier field and a unicorn comes out of the tunnel. The man emanates energy. At one point I watched Guy Fieri hold court between John Elway and Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, the president of the Broncos and two time Super Bowl champion were like two little kids listening to Guy Fieri tell stories. He is a human ball of energy and just to be in his presence was something special. It was the highlight of my night. It was the highlight of my week. Might be the highlight of my broadcasting career. Every part of me, every part of me wanted to take a picture with the man, but I could not muster up the humility. I, I couldn't muster up the courage to go approach this man and ask him for a photograph. And that's not like me. If I want the picture, I'm going to go get the picture. Guy Fieri had me frozen. It was was a fantastic moment. Now we know after all these years of, you know, being the confident guy, being in the media, all that stuff, rubbing elbows with with famous people, we we finally found Joe's kryptonite. And that is being being in Flavortown. Yeah, you put me in Flavortown and I lock up quick. So I'm hoping Guy makes it to a couple more home games and I can uh, build up that courage to approach the man and tell him, how big of an impact he's had on my life as an amateur cook and as someone who just loves to throw on Triple D and turn off my brain for a half hour at a time and see the best brisket that the United States has to offer. That's what I want to tell him. I want to, I want to be able to say those words to his face. Uh, bonus buy or sell before we get to buy or sell here. What do you, what do you got? Are you buying or you got to buy one, sell one, Triple D and Triple G? Triple G is what? Guys' grocery games. Oh, sell Guys Grocery Games. Oh, I love Guys Grocery Games, too. It's, it's a good show, but like, if you're telling me to pick between the two, it's it's not even close. We're talking we're talking like completely different league. Fair enough. I, I had to ask, because you got two shows, so you got to frame them up. You mentioned, lock, you mentioned experience. You mentioned locking things up, so should we, should we hit some locks of the week before buy or sell? Um, yeah, why not? Let's 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 do some locks. You want to give yours? You want me to go? What do you want to do? You, why don't you go first? All right. Um, I'm going with the old the old uh, coverage, the old team. Uh, I like Nebraska covering 14 against Northern Illinois for a number of reasons. Back at home, coming off a gut wrenching loss against Colorado, in which we saw spurts of greatness from the offense and Adrian Martinez. I think that they're going to run a number up here against Northern Illinois. I don't know what the over-under is. I, I, I don't have it in front of me right now. But um, I like Nebraska covering 14 against Northern Illinois. They are also avenging a loss from two seasons ago when Northern Illinois came in and beat them in Mike Riley's final season. That was Lost really the low point, low point of the program. Um, I remember just the heartbreak. And this is a, uh, an opportunity for them to atone that loss and to bounce back from a, hot, a gut-wrenching loss against a rival in the Colorado Buffs. I am going to go I, – I, you and I talked a little bit before this. We didn't like any of the lines for the most part in college or the pros. There wasn't one that really – Yeah, not a ton out. of them jumped off. Jumped I'm going to actually go a little bit different here off the beaten path. I'm going to take the under in the Colts-Titans game. It's at 45 right now. Um, I think that's a – it's a rivalry game. It's two teams with quarterbacks that aren't – that great, that love to run the football, that play pretty darn good defense. Um, I, I'm going to come I, – I, I, I like that being a defensive battle, really a field position type game, and two quarterbacks that aren't going to make a whole ton of big plays. Um, so give me the under 45 in Ooh. Titans and Colts. Lock that up. You're going to have to watch to the final whistle, folles Under 45. Man, Nothing more exciting than rooting for the clock. Sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes, Sometimes. you got to do that. Uh, just to give you an update, Matt is currently one and one in the lock of the week uh, rankings, and I am zero and two. So, uh, spotting Matt an early game here, but a lot of football to be batted on. Mm-hmm. Matt, let's jump into some buy or sell. What do you say? Let's do it. You want to start baseball or college football? Start me off with some baseball. All right, we're going to go to the uh, the National League wild card race. Injuries are, n- are nothing you like to see, especially down the stretch here. And, and the Cubs and the Brewers have both had pretty big ones. Javi Baez is going to miss the rest of the regular season. With that fracture in his thumb, Christian Yelich last night, or it was two nights ago, fouled the, fouled the ball off his knee and fractured his knee. So he's out for the year. I'm going to ask you to, I guess, buy or sell ha, Christian Yelich. I'll just pick one out of a hat here. Buy or sell Christian Yelich is the bigger injury loss 
to their team than Javi Baez is to the Cubs. I'm going to buy it just slightly, and I say that as a compliment to the Cubs and their roster. On this roster isn't what it used to be. I do think that they can win ball games without Javi Baez. They've showed that they can do that in spurts. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the Brewers can do anything without Christian Yelich. He accounted for so much of their offensive production. And I know Javi accounted for a lot of the Cubs as well, and the energy and the spark he brings and the sound defensive play that he brings on a daily basis. But Christian Yelich and what he's done for the Brewers has been their life source. Mm-hmm. I think we see a immediate decline following this injury last night. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's, it's nothing against Javi Baez. He's a great player, but he's one of a few in that lineup. Whereas you look at that Brewers lineup, it's a, it's a fine lineup. It's not bad. Obviously, it's competing for a playoff spot. But when you take Christian Yelich and that production out of that lineup, who, I mean, he was on pace for an MVP season again this year, if not finishing, you know, second to uh, Cody Bellinger out in L.A., they're going to miss that lineup greatly. They already don't have that great of a pitching staff. Obviously, the bullpen's great, but you got to get there with a lead first. I guess the one thing the Brewers have going for them is they finish up with two. Uh, they have two more games in Miami. They have a series with the Cardinals over the weekend, but after that, they don't play a team over 500 the rest of the way. So that the schedule is a little bit lighter. Whereas the Cubs have, I think, seven with the Cardinals. Yeah. Um, so I, that's kind of the one thing they have going for them. But in terms of a lineup, uh, I think totally the Brewers are going to miss Yelich more than the Cubs miss Bias. Uh, Matt, we're going to keep things in the baseball realm right now. The Cubs reeling a bit here. Buy or sell. Looking at the season as a whole, that Joe Madness to blame for this year's inconsistency. I can't buy that. Uh, I mean, he's definitely part of the blame, but you look at where the money has been spent on this team and kind of who's been brought in and the problems they've the front office has addressed or hasn't really addressed. And I think you have to blame the guys bringing in the players because Joe Madden can really only go to the people that he has in on his roster in his lineup. He hasn't been given a leadoff hitter since Dexter Fowler left, so you have to tinker there. You have to try new guys, and nobody's really settled into that role. And when you are moving guys up and down there, you have to move around the rest of your lineup. In terms of bullpen, he's never been a great bullpen manager, but really he hasn't had the chance to manage that great of a bullpen. Greg Kimbrell's only been uh, healthy, not on the DL, for about half the games he's been here, and that tweaks a lot. I mean, when you have that healthy closer, obviously that bullpen falls in the line. But when he's not, you have to kind of pick and choose your spots with guys. He hasn't. He, he definitely has a lot of the blame falling him. Last night's loss, leaving Steve Seashank in, who walked in the winning run with the bases loaded for his third walk of the inning. That's probably inexcusable. But at the same time, he's only got so many options to go to. So I, while some of the blame is on him, you have to look at the front office and the roster, the group that they give him. Yeah, in my eyes. You can never assign blame to one place. Has Joe Madden made some questionable decisions, some questionable lineups? Absolutely. But the players got to go out there and play the game. It's nine innings. It's 27 outs. It's baseball. Um, the front office has to put those players and that manager in the position to win those ball games. So it's always going to be a group effort. You can assign blame wherever you want. It's just not clicking the way it should. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at where that big money has been spent. They have one of the – Top five highest payrolls in Major League Baseball, something like that. I don't know off the top of my head. I want to say it's like $218 million. But I, I keep kept seeing this stat thrown out on Twitter. I think it's Baez, Schwarber, Bryant, um, and Rizzo combined for like only 14% of their payroll. And the rest of it's going, you know, you got Jason Hayward who's making all this money. You got John Lester who's really not producing, making all this money. Though you can't call that a bad signing because he was the, the ace on World Series staff. You can't pay Cole Hamels $20 million. You're paying you Darvish, you know, 121 over six years, and he's been a middle-of-the-road starter at best. So a lot of this money has been shelled out to guys who are just not living up to contracts because they had one or two really good years in their you know, their previous stops. Yeah. All right, Matt, hit me. Uh, LSU, Texas. Did you get to watch much of that on Saturday night? Uh, I did. I, LSU, I, Joe Burrow looks really good in that, that new-look spread offense. Texas played a fun game, but just a fun game back and forth. But after that game, with LSU's ability to kind of throw the football now, I'm going to ask you, buy or sell, LSU has entered that upper echelon of teams that are capable of winning a national championship. Because I think before that, it was pretty much Georgia, Oklahoma, Alabama, Clemson. I buy it. Um, Are they in that conversation? 100%. If Joe Burrow can play football the way he did on Saturday night, it's going to put them in a position to win every single one of their football games. Now, they do have to go through 
potentially Alabama. They do have, or they do have to go through Alabama. They, have to they do Alabama. have to potentially, and they potentially have to go through Georgia. Um, and that's a tall task. Those are mm-hmm. the two best teams in the country, most likely. Two of the three best teams in the country, at least. But are they in that conversation with Georgia, Alabama, Clemson? Absolutely. I think they should be right there in the four through six range, uh, especially if Joe Burrow keeps playing football the way he did. Not only did he play quarterback the way you need to to win football games, he went into a hostile environment and did it and then waved goodbye to the Texas fans on the way out. The kid's got some style about him. He's got some swagger about him. And in the it, it, maybe not so much in the NFL, but in college football, that goes a long way. Yeah, I love everything about what LSU did Saturday. I thought Texas looked pretty darn good, too, and Sam Ellinger is going to be a very good quarterback. I mean, that said, LSU has, has separated themselves, and I think, I mean, that Alabama game, LSU-Alabama is always a huge game every year, but I think, you know, this one's going to be have as big of a feel to it as it did that, I forgot what game it was a few years ago, where LSU ended up winning 9-6, to and they had that rematch in the national championship game. I think this is going to be like the the biggest feel we've had for an LSU-Bama game since that point. I think it's going to be an absolutely massive game because that really is going to set the tone for who's going to the SEC championship out of that division. 100%. Matt, buy or sell. Michigan, after escaping with a victory against Army in double overtime, is on a program downturn that will essentially lead to the end of the Jim Harbaugh era in the not-too-distant future. I can't buy that yet. Um, they did not look good Saturday. Army did look pretty good. Really, the only re- Michigan won that game because Army let them back in it. They were knocking on the doorstep, had a chance to go up 10. Instead, they tried to throw the ball on third and goal from four, and it was terrible. Intercepted it with a chance to go up 17-7. It's now, you know, Michigan goes right back down and ties it. Um, we've seen some losses from, or not losses, you know, wins like this in the past from contenders. I mean, Notre Dame had a handful of them last year. Oklahoma barely escaped the same Army team at home. It doesn't look good for Michigan early on, and I think Shea Patterson's inability to hang on to the football and the whole they're going to play two quarterbacks, that's a problem. Uh, I think Uh you need to settle on one guy. Josh Gaddis's offense doesn't really look like it's clicking all that well, and I think that might lead to Jim Harbaugh taking over sooner rather than later, sooner than, than he planned. But they're still getting recruits. They're still Michigan. Jim Harbaugh's still there, and I don't think I don't think Jim Harbaugh is really ever going to get fired there. I'm not sure they can really do much better than him, and that's not saying he's bad. I don't think they can do much mm-hmm. better. I think he really only leaves if he has a job, he other job he wants to take. So I'm not going to say it's a downturn, but I don't. I, I think last year was kind of their year to do it, and I think this year I, I don't get why everyone's saying kind of this is now Michigan's year. When really, I think it was last year. I think this might be a year where Michigan takes a little bit of a step back. They got a tough I schedule agree. out of them, man. They got to go to Wisconsin. They got to go to Penn State. They got Notre Dame coming in. They have Michigan State coming in, who they have not beaten at home in the Harbaugh era. Uh, they got Ohio State. That that's a tough schedule. That's a tough ask. I uh, completely agree with you and your sentiment there. Let's not close the book on them just yet, but uh, the window could be closing. All right, Matt. I think it's important as well uh, on the 18th anniversary of the tragic events of 9/11. Um, at the time that we are recording this, that we offer our thoughts and our prayers. And I know um, they often ring hollow when they're just coming in the form of social media or on a podcast. But um, the best thing that we can do um, 18 years removed from that tragedy is to continue to love those around us and speak peace and speak uh, positivity into this world that we live in because we know we need it. And, um, you know, we're thinking of all those that suffered and continue to suffer the uh, horrific tragedies of that day. Yeah, you know, every every day, uh, every year on this day, I always, it's pretty much the first thing I do when I wake up and I'm kind of scrolling through Twitter, uh, you know, social media, all that. I, I watch the 13-minute or so video on, on the story of Wells Crowther and the red yep. bandana, and I know my brother has been tweeting out that link or you know, putting it out on Facebook every year for, I think, as long since ESPN's released it. There's not much to say, uh, you know, on, on the events of that day and all that stuff. We, we obviously know what happened, but... Uh, if you haven't seen that video, if you have, go watch that. It's a perfect example of how we should all live our lives, uh, you know, to, to serve others, to serve our fellow man around us. And uh, it's you know, be courageous and, and live courageously and bravely throughout our lives. And that's, that's kind of all I have to say about it. Amen, brother. Um, well, I appreciate you as always. And uh, we appreciate you guys, the listeners. We want to dive back into that mailbag here coming up 
on these we got upcoming a, we, episodes. We got a couple we're sitting on. I, we we got a couple. Got, I want to I shout out Parker Carroll. He sent us a couple. Okay. Uh, there's a couple we're sitting on, but some of these NFL weeks, you know, we run a little bit long, so we'll, we'll save them for, for weeks or maybe we'll run a little bit short. And the pod doesn't go, you know, go as long today. We had a grievance. Maybe one week we don't have a grievance. We have time for a mailbag. Who knows? Yeah, well, we'll jump Not bad to it. be sitting on. Not, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you uh, die on that hill alone, Matt. The mailbag, um, Joe. <laughs> before we go here, I'm uh, going to offer you a little bit of Chicago breaking news. Uh, Paul Torino of The Athletic, he's a soccer columnist, Chicago guy, um, just tweeting out that City Council has approved the Chicago Fire's motion to play at Soldier Field next season, and I don't know how far beyond that, but Chicago Fire will play at Soldier Field next season, so get ready for a nice, messy track for Bears football. Great. We'll get into that on a later pod, but for now, for Matt Rooney, I'm Joe Musso. Talk to you guys soon. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome.